Welcome to Revolutionize Your Retirement Radio, bringing you insights and strategies to help you create a magnificent and fulfilling second half of life. Here's your host, certified professional retirement coach and best-selling author, Dr. Dorian Mincer. I want to welcome everybody to the Revolutionize Your Retirement interview with expert series. I'm Dory Mincer, owner of Revolutionize Retirement and host of the interview series, and I'm delighted to have all of you with you. So let me proceed and just tell you a little about Chris Farrell, who's my guest this month. Many of you have probably read a little about him, and Chris is an economics editor of Marketplace Money, which is a nationally syndicated hour weekly personal finance show produced by American Public Media. He's a frequent contributor to Next Avenue and author really of a few books, and the most recent one is called Unretirement, How Baby Boomers Are Changing the Way We Think About Work community and the good life. And another book that Chris has written is called The New Frugality. Just as an aside, I actually first met Chris. It was funny. I thought it was funny, lovely, funny experience for both of us. We both had been invited to be part of the Today Show on this little segment when Al Roker was turning 60 and he was clear he didn't want to retire. And Chris's book was coming out and the book I co-authored, Couples Retirement Puzzle, had just gotten republished with Sourcebook, a independent publisher. And so we both, he flew in from Minnesota. It's Minnesota, Chris. That's right. Okay. And I flew in or I took the train in from Boston and we met there. And then we met again at the Encore Summit in Tempe, Arizona. And so I am just so delighted that you're with us, Chris. And I must say, I just, I got an email from Helen Dennis who talked about how wonderful you were and said she wants you to know she says hello. Oh, (laughs) I I just wanted to tell you that. And I do know that ASA is happening as we speak. And so there are a number of people who have signed up who I know aren't able to be here live because they're at the American Society on Aging, but they're all with us in spirit. Chris, let's start. And maybe you can tell us a little about what got you interested really in writing this book. And part of your thesis is that older Americans are increasingly embracing this notion of unretirement. So maybe you can start there and maybe explain what unretirement means and what this trend is about. Sure. And thank you very much for having me. So the genesis of the book actually goes fairly far back in my career. I've mostly, as a journalist, done economics and personal finance. And in both fields over the past two, three decades, a theme in economics has been the aging of the population, particularly the aging of the baby boom population. And most of the discussion have been the negative economic effects of an older population. And then personal finance, it's a really, personal finance has really been saving for retirement or not saving for retirement. And the, again, the theme about uh, getting older and entering those retirement years and the personal finance has been that most people aren't going to be able to maintain their standard of living when they get older. And as time went on, we became increasingly skeptical about paraphrasing Hunter S. Thompson, the dire demographics of aging, or fear and loathing about aging in America. 
And so started looking into it more carefully. And I went to a couple of the Encore.org conferences, Mark Friedman's group based out of the Bay Area, and just started talking to more people, doing more research, looking more into the economics. And there's a whole body of economic work that is basically pushed back pretty hard against that an older population is going to weigh on the economy. And so that was really the genesis of it. And then it all came together. And part of what came together with the downturn is, as everyone noticed and remarked upon, 55-plus workers, you saw growth in the 55-plus workforce during that period of time. And this was remarked on. And my sense was this is actually part of a longer-term trend. It kicked in before the downturn, and this is the way the world is working. And once you get an idea like that, then you go off and start reporting it out. I'm glad you've decided to start reporting it out because I think it, we've been seeing this trend for a while and more and more people aren't wanting to leave partly because they can't afford to, but also a lot of people aren't wanting to leave because they really love working. Yes. And with this unretirement, the way I define unretirement is that if you're in the traditional retirement years, it's continuing to earn some kind of an income continuing to be engaged in the workplace in some form or fashion. That may be flexible work, contract work, temp work, part-time work. It could be another full-time job. It could be starting your own business. But in some sense, you are remaining engaged in the workforce. And what the data shows is that actually is a story of majority now of people who are into the to traditional retirement years is that in some form or fashion, they're continuing to earn at least some income. So what kind of work, I mean, you've mentioned sort of project work or whatever, but were you finding any trends in that too of the kind of work that older workers are finding? Because we do know that sort of ageism is out there. Ageism is a really big deal. And, yeah. and just to hit on that one really quickly, ageism is real and what older workers who have skill, they have knowledge, they have experience, and more and more people are less willing to walk away from that. Through all the ups and downs of our careers, and most of us have had ups and downs, you do reach a point where you do know something, and it's actually a part of who you are and what you are. And fewer people just want to say, I'm not going to do, I'm not going to use that skill, not going to use that knowledge, not going to use that experience ever again. I'm just going to walk away from it. And but they want to stay engaged somehow. So typically what you're seeing is people, it's more in the social service sector, healthcare education services, working in a medical diagnostics office. It's more in the, you're not out there in a field or on a factory floor the same way. It's more white collar work, pink collar work, gold collar work, whatever you want to describe it. But I would say it's in the social service sector, the services sector, the information technology sector, using computers. And it just, that was such a big part of our economy now. And if we were having this discussion in the 1950s, 1960s, when the factory and farming and fishing and mining, these were the big sectors of our economy, sort of the dominating sector. Today, it's information technologies, it's healthcare, it's education, it's government. And these are areas where people can continue to work much longer. So what I, what you're really seeing is people taking their skill, their experience, their knowledge, and but oftentimes going to a different part of the economy, so going from the for-profit sector to the not-for-profit sector 
were shifting away and maybe you've had some skills and you don't want to keep working for the same company you've been working for. But you do some contract work with them and you do some contract work with some related companies and it's doing that kind of a work. So if there there is taking your skills, but at the same time kind of shifting over to something that's a little bit different because that gives you a creative push. It's a little more fun. You're meeting new people. You have different challenges, but you also get the reassurance of tapping into what you actually know how to do and what you feel confident in doing. And are you finding that employers are in these fields, in social services and information technology, are you finding employers becoming more and more open to older workers negotiating these kind of phases and maybe part-time pursuits or changes in their job description? So it's a complicated picture or it's a mixed picture. So if you overall look at companies, and and mostly larger companies now we're talking about, that have human resources departments. This is a big conversation that's going on in the human resource world. And I would say the last couple of years, it's been a conversation, but there hasn't been a whole lot of action. Now my sense is the tone of the conversation is changing, and I've given some talks before human resources professionals, and what there is a sense that the unemployment rate is coming down as the economy is getting stronger, that, you know what, we actually have to start taking this a little more seriously, and we might have to come up with some programs. And so that conversation, I think, is shifting, but up until recently, it's still an awful lot of you negotiate with your supervisor, you negotiate a deal with your boss. Where we're seeing programs is typically where there's a really low unemployment rate. So that the technology sector of the economy, probably the best known program right now is Intel and their Encore Career Fellowships. So you've been working at Intel, you decide it's time for you to retire, you want to take your skills in a nonprofit sector, you applied to become an Encore Fellow, and it's a matchmaking service. And they match your skills to a nonprofit that needs your skills and they, you get a stipend. And so it's a very good program. IBM has its program going from you're a worker there and you want to become a teacher. Hewlett-Packard has at Cisco. But as you can imagine, these are all parts of the economy where you have very low unemployment, a lot of competition for talent. But when I spent time at Herman Miller up in Zeeland, Michigan, the, the office furniture manufacturer, they have programs, phased retirement mm-hmm. programs. And the federal government, I think this is really exciting. This year and next year, the federal government, the various agencies are going to start instituting their phased retirement program for their workers. And the initial slice how this goes. It can change in the future, but the initial slice will be you agree to work 20 hours a week and you agree for that 20 hours, you spend 20% of your time mentoring younger workers Mm. and then you can partially withdraw on your pension. And there's a lot of interest in this and I think if it's successful, Mm. more and more companies will adopt it. So we're at a transition point because in 2010, for example, Companies intellectually worried about this. You you could do a go into your search engine and find a lot of worry about older workers and all them leaving and what does this mean. But they didn't really have to do much. Now I think they're beginning to say, you know what, <laughs> we better do something. We better set up a program. We better start dealing with this because it's happening. 
That's really encouraging to hear. I have heard about the IBM and the Intel. I hadn't heard of the others and the federal government. So how do, is it open like to anybody across the board or early in It's the open to, there, there are some limitations and you have to have, depending on which we, you, you, depending on which retirement system you come under and you've had to have put in 20 to 30 years, there's, there are various requirements that you have to meet. But basically what it is for longtime employees who are in the you know, defined benefit pension plan it has been established that this is really going to be open to them. And the reason why the federal government is embracing this quite simply is they have an older than average workforce and they also have a better educated than average workforce. And so the federal government actually, if you just ran the numbers and said, a lot of people are gonna retire at 62, the federal government really has a human resource problem on its hands. And but what they're banking on, and I think it's the right thing to do, they also have a well-educated population not necessarily desirous of immediately retiring and would be intrigued by the prospect of a phased retirement. So I think it's a smart idea, but what is really exciting about it, if it works, I think a lot of other companies are then going to say, hey, this works, mm -hmm. and why don't we do something like that? That would be so wonderful to see that begin to happen more because what I hear sometimes is that some it just really totally does depend on the company, but some places are more receptive to the idea of letting you cut back in four days or three days or yeah. different things and other places just are so rigid. So partly it just depends on what field you're in. And I think that's really still, that's the norm. Yeah. That's that. That's right. what's normal and very dependent on your relationship with your supervisor or the kind of company right. that it is. If you're down in Florida, for example, what you'll notice is a lot of the major hospital systems there really have very good programs for older workers. And that's because of the need for nurses. And nursing can be a very tough profession on your body, but it's also a highly skilled profession. And they've set it up so that many nurses can work part-time. So again, it can be a particular industry or it can be a particular sector. And you're absolutely right. The norm is still, there's more people wanting to have part-time employment in the ret traditional retirement years, the unretirement years, than there is right now programs. And But what I think we're going to see is more of those programs coming about because of changes in the economy. That is encouraging. And I know in a little bit we'll talk more about even people starting their own companies, entrepreneurship. Right. But let's let me just stick this. So there's a question from Bob from Arizona, who says that I meet many people who say that they're never going to be able to retire, and usually say so with very sad affect. And he just wondered, do you have any words of encouragement or thoughts on reframing it for people? Yes, and this is not quite. He's absolutely right. Bob is right. And this is something that we all hear a lot. Even if you think about it, conversations you've had, anecdotal experiences of people saying that. And what it partially is based on is we have an image of what retirement is at its leisure. And that's it. It's just leisure. And if you're working this is a really bad thing. This is a really big disappointment in your life. Your life has been a failure because instead of having leisure, you're working. And I think that is just a wrong, A, I think that is wrong, and B, I think it's a wrong framing. Now, there are people who 
would love to, their bodies are burned out, their minds are burned out, they don't like their job, and they have to keep working. And it is a resignation. And you can understand that. But for many people, I think it's more, we need to shift the discussion to what do you want to do next? What would provide you with some income and some meaning? What are you intrigued about doing? And you've done all these things all your life. You have all this skill and knowledge. And yeah, we, you know what? We have a society. We have companies. We have organizations. They don't value that enough. But hey, we got to have to change that conversation. And over time, they are going to value. You're part of a movement. They are going to value what you're doing more and more. And I also think that there is a, I don't know if you've come across this, but almost like a an institutional discussion that says, look, we have to portray older people as frail and vulnerable because we're really worried about what's going to happen to their benefits. And if we say they're able to work longer, then maybe those benefits are going to be taken away. And I think that would be terrible. The benefits should be taken away. The benefits should not be taken away. But a lot of these older workers are not frail. They're not vulnerable. They are engaged. They have something to offer. And so it's really of changing the conversation to what do you want to do next? And what might that be? And let's figure that out. Let's go have some informational coffees and let's go have some informational discussions. So it, it, you're absolutely right. The only thing I will say, and I was talking with somebody the other day about this and we were both remarking on it, which is 10, 15 years ago, if you mentioned working longer, it was universal that this was horrible. This was yeah. terrible. You were the rat in the room. And why were you talking about this? And today, I don't know if this is your experience, but today, the major response, what does this mean? So what it, what might I be doing? Oh, explain to me this a little bit more. And it's a very different conversation. And what I think is happening is we're getting older, and the people that I'm talking about are older, and are kind of are like intrigued by this. So the discussion in 15 years has really changed. Oh, I think you're absolutely right. I see that myself. What's interesting is when you think about the oldest boomers that are those born between the right around 1946 to, I guess, the next four years or whatever, they all, it's nine years ago now that, because I'm one of them, so I know when everybody <laughs> turns 60, so I can keep track of it. And of my generation of the leading edge boomers, as they're called, there really was this sense, we have to keep working, we want to keep working, we're too young, we're too vital, we're too yeah. this, we're too that. And But it's true, we're all getting older now. And what I found then, and I don't know if you have, but I found then that some of the younger boomers who were then just still 50, they still were talking about wanting to retire at the more traditional age. And I think that's now the youngest boomers have all turned 50. And I think it's starting, the demographics have changed too, because there's 10,000 a day yeah. of people turning 65 or around that, I guess, turning 50. And it, it is mind boggling in terms of, it's you're, <laughs> just a number of things that came to mind, just the number of people. Many people are young and vital and just want to keep working. Plus also, it makes a big difference if you're going to live into your 90s if you keep having some income, even if it's not full-time income. Yeah, the, the impact on household finances is really quite yeah. powerful. Even if you're earning a slim part-time income, it does change the numbers. It does have a big effect. And then, of course, for many people, there will come a time when they do retire. But what is that? What is turning out, and John Chauvin at Stanford University has made this argument, is that actually the number of years that we're 
in the classic retirement, the sort of more classic sense of retirement, hasn't changed that much. What is changing is that we're living longer, and therefore the average person or the median person is working longer. And it's not part of it is for some people, it's purely economic, for, but for many people, it's partly economic. The economics are so powerful. But on the other hand, it's also we're better educated. We're healthier than previous generations. You've probably seen all those surveys. You probably know a lot more about those surveys than I do in terms of when they ask people in, in their retirement years, what do you most miss about pre-retirement? Number one on the list is almost always colleagues, the people I knew at work, the people I interacted with at work. And so work is really a social institution. And what we're also finding is that the people who don't have to work, the people who could retire in the very traditional sense, they want to keep working because work is part of who they are. So I think there's a lot of forces coming together. And I'll toss out an idea for you, which I've just been experimenting with is, and it was Mark Friedman who wrote a piece about the importance of taking a sabbatical. And for most of us, it really turns out sabbatical is just not practical. Unless you're in academia, maybe you're a law partner. There's certain parts of our economy where sabbaticals are built in. For most of us, it's not realistic to take a sabbatical. Oh, we can't afford to take a sabbatical. Okay. What, has, what retirement has turned out to be, saying goodbye to your colleagues for last time, walking out the door, what retirement has actually turned out to be is a sabbatical. Because within two years, most the majority of those people who have said goodbye to their colleagues for last time, they're still working. It's just that... They needed a long vacation. They needed a break. They have to figure out what to do next. They're not working. They're continuing to work. It's just in a different form or fashion. Mm -hmm. it, is a it is an interesting concept to think about that. And I've seen that too. Some people just really do want totally out and then they want to come back. Yeah. Which then leads to there's a question from Jim who's in Maine and it's maybe the question can be posed either for people who want to stay at work but also those who want to come back into the workforce after maybe being out for a couple of years. How do we convince the HR and C HR people and CEOs that they should be preparing for this large boomer exodus from the workforce and to be thinking about flexible hours, mentoring, easing out? To, re to retain the historical knowledge and the culture, what do we need to do? I know you spoke a little about that before, but maybe you can elaborate a little bit more of thinking about it both in terms of convincing them to let people stay, but it's another paradigm, it seems to me, of convincing people to take people back after they've been yes. out maybe for a couple of years. And they're just on a, there's a very interesting trend going on about taking bringing people back, which is – and I did some reporting. There's a company who's just been doing it for a long time, Aerospace in Southern California. They have a very particular business, which is they test and run all kinds of diagnostics on rockets and satellites. And so they have a very skilled workforce. And they had set up what they call the casuals. And what the casuals is about 350 people right now. These are retirees who can then come back because this is very skilled work. And it's open to anybody. And they said a lot of Everyone down up from highly skilled to less skilled does can participate in this. And they set up this program. And I thought, boy, why aren't more companies doing this? And it turns out that there are more companies doing it, typically with a highly skilled workforce. But what other companies are doing is they're outsourcing this task to places like Kelly Services. 
So Blue Cross Blue Shield of America has a program, the Blue program. So you're a manager at Blue Cross Blue Shield. You got a project coming along. You want to liberate a couple of your people to do it, but you need more bodies to be thrown in there. And you can contact and a retired Blue can come in with their has the right skills and expertise and help out on that project. And then they go back. And the advantage of going with Kelly Services or Manpower or some sort of outsource is that they deal with all the, there's some limitations on how many hours you can put in at your previous company coming back because you're trying to avoid certain abuses. So they do, they handle all the paperwork. They make sure that you're doing everything correct under the labor law and everything like that. So in a sense, it's outsourced, but the benefit is still there. I think this is going to grow. I think this is a big growth area, particularly for big companies, P&G and Eli Lilly and Boeing. It was really P&G at first. Boeing joined them pretty quickly. They did the same thing. They set up Euro Encore in Indianapolis. They turned to a consultant to set up a company and that would essentially do the same thing, and now it's expanded. So we're going to see a lot more of that going on. How do we convince management? The main way you're going to convince management, and I think we're going to see this happen, is there is an image in this discussion that what it is, you've been working at a company for a long period of time, you're going to be working there for another 10 years. And I think for most people, they're going to say goodbye. They're going to go on, they're going to move somewhere else. So actually, they're taking their skills and their talent elsewhere. And what I think senior management is going to increasingly recognize is, look, if I can set up a way that I can actually keep in touch with this person and they're going to come back on a part-time basis or a flexible basis, whatever works for their schedule, they're going to be able to come back. And so we can continue to tap into their knowledge or expertise, but they get more time off and they get more flexible time and because they don't want to be putting in the same number of hours as before either. It's a win-win. And it's not that, and it's actually cheap in the long run. And when you skip down to it, with, where, with organizations, what really works is both the employer and the employee are in a win-win situation. And I think that's what we're moving toward more and more. And so I'm actually, I'm quite excited about, and you also have temp services, retirementjobs.com and other places that are moving into this space and de developing databases of employers who, and of older workers and who's performing a matchmaking service. But a big part of it is going to be this growing net recognition by employers that, you know what, a lot of skilled, talented, educated people are walking out and you know what I don't want to completely lose that maybe I don't want them completely on my workforce full-time but boy if I can have them on my workforce part-time and they get that more free time or they get the they can work uh, part-time for me and go off and start their own business or whatever it is they're going to be doing that's a win-win situation oh it definitely is it's encouraging to hear you be so hopeful and optimistic of seeing it. So it's wonderful to hear that. It, it ties into Karen from Minneapolis comments. She says that her experience with clients is that many of them really need that sabbatical. They need the break for their mind oh. and body. But then after that rest, 
they often can be creative about what they want to do next. And that's when they can even bring that heightened creativity maybe back to where they were or to another situation because they've had a chance to unwind in a way. I think Karen makes a really important point, and I like to emphasize the importance of planning and the five years before you're actually really starting to think about retirement, and we can talk about this later on, but how you should build this, what we're talking about and how you think about what's next into your retirement planning, just as is recommended to look at your 401k and your IRA or your house or whatever. You get to take a financial assessment. You also want to should be taking what do I want to do next assessment. But Karen's got a really important point, which is that a lot of us are working hard and your organization has a system that you that rewards certain behavior and penalizes certain behavior. And what people find that they need to do is they need to get away from the organization and its penalties and its rewards and start thinking about what do I want to do? What, hey, what would make me happy? Not what would make my colleagues say that's a smart thing to do or my boss say that's a smart thing to do, but what's a smart thing for me to do? And a lot of times you need some space, you need some distance away from your company. And then anyone who's been engaged in thinking about what's doing next, it's a lot of tapping into your network, going to have informational coffees, maybe doing some volunteer work just to see what organization you want to work for. All those things take time. And yeah, I think for a lot of people, it's taking a year, it's taking two years, taking a break. But then in the back of your mind and then over time, coming more to the forefront of your mind, start building and being creative and thinking about, okay, what's next? We'll come back to, I think, some of that too, because I think it's really important. Let me, Don from Canada says, he wonders from your experience, how would you go about creating a phased retirement program when management's become convinced that they need to clear out the quote unquote dead wood? There. There's very, as an employee, there's actually probably very little you can do. What will change management is when peers start doing it. And in the competition for workers, all of a sudden your peers are getting a better worker. Because most companies, if you look like the Intel program and the, or the Hewlett Packard program or the IBM program, these are good things to be doing and they're admirable things to be doing. And that we, I think it's great. You think it's great. This is great. But you know, a bit, what's going on here is this is about the competition for talent. And what they're able to say to a worker in their hiring, say, look, you're going to have a good career here. And then when it's time for you to leave and you want to go do something else, we're going to help you do that other thing. We're not going to say, hey, you want to leave? You're out the door. What we're going to do is we'll help you when it comes time for you to think about another career. We're going to be there for you. We're going to be, That's going to be part of the discussion that we're going to have with you. Yeah, we've got a 401k here, and you're going to have a good 401k. But guess what? You're also going to be able to have resources and conversations and opportunities to take your skills and your knowledge elsewhere and we are going to help you and that is an attractive proposition in the competition for talent now you're you have a choice to a company that's going to do like that or a company that's going to say guess what we don't want older workers so as soon as you get older we're going to figure out a legal way to get around the restrictions and we're going to get rid of you now over time which company do you think is going to have better profits and a better workforce I'm betting on the company that has the program that is going to 
help you go to the next career. And that's where the pressure is going to come through. It's going to come through mm-hmm. the competition in the marketplace. And then I think there's going to be, have to be changes in the law and social norms, a belief of what is a good life, a belief in uh, an expectation that companies mm-hmm. start providing this. There's a lot of things have to come together because if you are with a company where management doesn't like older workers and as far as they're concerned, they just would love it if they leave throughout the door, you're not going to change that overnight. You're just not. It's going to happen with time and through the through them realizing that they're losing market share or they're losing profits or they're not getting the kind of workers they want. It, I, I think that realism is really important. And I, here's an example. Sarah from Georgia says she's just started this process today for all the reasons that you've mentioned so far. She stated what she wanted and they want to keep her. So they've now started to search for her successor and working out with her a notion about a phased retirement. So that's a lovely example. That's a lovely example. <laughs> One of the things that, that, and this is just people in the back of their mind, as you're, if you are in an organization where maybe you are negotiating for a phased retirement, the mentoring is what companies also are really reaching for. And mentoring can be a little bit, sounds great. And I've talked to some people who are mentoring their replacement. And they say, first, it's a little bit strange because what you realize is you are eventually talking yourself out of a job and you are training the person who's going to replace you. And there is an awkward moment. But at the same time, the people I've talked to, they everybody adjusts and it's a good thing. So companies are looking for this knowledge transfer, this skill transfer. How do you do this job? How do, And helping out the younger workers who are bright and they're energetic, but they don't have your skill, your experience. They don't know the organization as well. And so it's a way of providing training and mentoring and smoothing the transition. So that's something really valuable that when you're negotiating with a company or you're negotiating with your supervisor, this is something you really do have to offer. And it's very expensive to try and do that without your help. So that is one of the things that, that the older worker does have, at least as mm. to be aware of it and to suggest it. You've mentioned, and I think it's true for the most part, that the boomers are the most educated and the kind of jobs that they have, the more white-collar jobs, are different from how it used to be. But what incentives, and often on these calls, people will ask, what about those who are less skilled or people who are lower income? Do you have any sense of what kind of incentives could be developed to help lower income people or people without some of the higher level skills stay in the workforce longer? Yes. And so a couple of things. One is that I think we have a too simplistic perspective on what blue collar work is. And a lot of blue collar work is very skilled work and becoming increasingly information technology work. And it, it was interesting in 2000, during the downturn, early years of the downturn, and Kia, the Korean automaker, opened its plant down in West Point Pepperell, I believe it was, and the old textile town. And pretty much all the workers that they hired, 480 or whatever the number was, they all had some sort of community college degree community college certificate. And so I think the real dividing line is skill. It's not white collar, blue collar, it's skill. And when I was here in town, there's a wonderful technical college, Dunwoody, and I was talking to them and they were saying electricians. 
electrician is a job where you do reach a point where it gets harder and harder to climb up the ladder and hold your hands over your head, and it can really wear down your body. But then they go to a place like Dunwoody or a community college and they make a certificate and they like make great estimators on projects. And they're really skilled at it and they're really good at it. And so it just turns out they have an, what we call an encore career, but it doesn't actually show up in a lot of the discussion. So if you look at apprenticeship programs around the country, which have been growing, a lot of the apprenticeship, who are the teachers? The teachers are the former machinists. It's the former welder. It's, and they're having their encore career, their second career. So it's easiest in the sectors of the economy where I would, rather than education, or even white collar, blue collar, I would simply use the word skill. And, and in fact, skills tradespeople have actually lived the life that many white collar people are now living, which is a lot more volatility to your job, good times and bad times, and are actually quite skilled at making shifts in the economy. When I was a merchant seaman, I worked four years on engine rooms of ships. And I always remember this one guy, and he was a welder, and he made a good money welding pipelines in Texas. And then that business went bust for a period of time. This was in the the depression of the Southwest and in the 80s. And so then what he did is he worked on at sea for a while as a welder. It was a lot less money, provided income, and then they owned a little store that his wife ran. And just there's all kinds of things that people do. Mm-hmm. Where I am concerned, and I think where the concern is genuine, is you've worked in a low-income job, a low-wage job all your life, and you've never had an employer-sponsored retirement savings plan. You've never had an employer-sponsored health insurance. And you're getting older and your body is beaten down. And, you know, it, and you do need to retire. And there, what we really do need to do is we need to increase the benefits. We need to increase Social Security, not talking about cutting back on Social Security. Because there are people for whom they need more financial support. They aren't going to be able to work longer. And they may, they're going to find other things to do, but they need more financial support. So I think that this is not an either or question. Look, if more and more people embrace working longer, it's going to generate more corporate profits, it's going to generate more economic growth, and we're going to be paying a lot more in income taxes coming through the system, and we'll have more than enough wherewithal to take care of those people who can't participate in this. And even there, we need to be wary about making certain assumptions that people can't continue to work. It's just that they probably can't continue to work doing the job that they've been doing because it's actually pretty miserable. Mm-hmm. Such an excellent point. I think it's so important to underscore that notion about the skills. And I think you're so right that, I mean, there's so many skills that are transferable, but there are some job situations that are lead much more quickly to burnout. So it's like really important. And your point is so well taken and important that if more and more people work longer, that is going to help our economy so that those who really can't work longer are able, one would wish, are able to get the help they need. I guess that probably relates to the people who can't continue working because maybe their health is failing. In yeah. a way, you've alluded to that, but there's another whole group of people where they can't do whatever they were doing because of their health issues. And we all know, on average, if you're better educated and have a higher income, overall, you're healthier. But that's on average. And yes, and there are 
disabilities can really hit hard. Some people just can't continue to work. You have early onset of Alzheimer's. There'll be all kinds of things. And that's always important. It's always that expression, be happy for your health. And it's really true. I also think that as part of this discussion, as we are having this discussion about working longer, which also should affect the way we think about disability. Disability is being redefined. Technology can make big differences in disability. We have a disability system that says you either work or you can't work. And if you can't work, you get support. And if you can work, you basically don't. And as people are, but many people are disabled, want to continue to work, and yet they also need support. And so one of the things that I would like to see longer term as part of our discussion, and one of the things that's embedded in the American Disabilities Act is if you want to be working, whether you're 65 and partially disabled or you're 45 and partially disabled, that we create incentives for employers and for people that people can continue to work, continue to be a productive member of our society, but because of their disabilities, they can also get some support as opposed to our current system, which by and large says, if you want that support, you can't work at all. Which ends up being so demeaning to people and, and yes. infantilizing in some ways and yes. not helping our economy at all either. Yeah. No. Can you say a little bit more about that? And also it ties in Jerry from Boston wondered if there are any political leaders at the forefront of this and wondering are there are you aware of any kind of movement in this direction? Because we mostly hear we're going to not have money for social care. It's like the doom and gloom of right. everything. So. <laughs> there, what there is, there's important strands of conversation and thoughtful conversation that are going on in think tanks and in parts of academia. So John Chauvin at Stanford University, for example, he has a proposal out there, which I really love, is pick 40 years. You've worked for 40 years. At that point, as far as Social Security is concerned, you're paid up. So you don't contribute anymore, and you are automatically, that's a bump up in your pay and you're cheaper to your employer. Olivia Mitchell, who is really the dean of pension economists, she and a couple of colleagues came up with this absolutely brilliant proposal, which is you're 66 years old, your full retirement age, and you delay retiring to, say, age 67. So you lock, but however, you lock in your age 66 benefit, and then your extra, because you worked for an extra year, you get as a lump sum payment. And people like lump sum payments because you can hand, give the money to your children, you can give money to charity, you can invest it if you think you can invest it. There's a certain amount of control that people like to lump sum payment. And they estimated that if you had this program, that people would work about a year and a half longer on average. And some people would work actually quite a bit longer because they really did want that lump sum payment. But it's a program that you lock in a downside. So you get your annuity at age, for age 66, but if you work to age 70, you get a lump sum that represents age 66 to age 70. So these ideas are out there, the Center for Retirement Research in Boston, Encore.org, Life Reimagined, the Richard Leiter's group's been doing a lot of good stuff. But what you're, and so I think on a sort of more of a grassroots level, there's some really thoughtful ideas out there. There is almost none of this discussion going on at the state level, and there is certainly almost none of this going on 
in Washington, D.C. And my guess is it's going to take, on the state level, we're probably going to start seeing more over the next five years because states have to deal with an aging population, an aging workforce, the baby boomers. States are more, they have to deal with it more quickly. I think in Washington, it's going to probably take what? 10 years to affect the conversation because there's so much that could be done to create smart incentives that would encourage people to work longer. But for those who can't or for those who don't want to, they wouldn't have to. But creating incentives for people to work longer, positive incentives. But right now, we're kind of frozen. So very little happening in Washington. I expect a lot more to actually happen on the state level. But most of the activity that's happening right now is more grassroots. And I guess just even individual people thinking about, just as you were saying earlier, what's important to me, what's next, and really trying to push that's part of the grassroots level, but even on an individual level within their own companies that it's going to need to come from that. What have you found have been some of the implications for people of working longer? And You mentioned before, and I agree with you about the importance of retirement planning, and you've said, but maybe you can say more about just the impact it has if there's another year to five years or 10 years even in the workforce. of. Yeah. So just part of it is yeah, in one way of framing it. So there, there's if there, there's a standard in golf rules of thumb, if we're just using the rule of thumb for illustrative purposes, but then on an individual level, you'd have to adjust the number like this. But if you, there's a rule of thumb in personal finance that you can withdraw 4% from your retirement savings. And then the next year you do 4% plus inflation. So if you earned $10,000, that's the equivalent of a 4% withdrawal from a $250,000 portfolio. Mm-hmm. So the implications are there. Robert Shackleton, just this is one way of illustrating the power of working longer. Robert Shackleton is an economist at the Congressional Budget Office in 2004. And he did this illustration. So you have a couple that make $100,000 a year. They're both working. They make $100,000 a year. And they want to, if they retire at age 62, if you use the standard, you need 80% of your pre-retirement income in retirement to maintain your standard of living. And then you use Social Security's average life expectancy. If they file for Social Security at age 62, they need a portfolio of $890,000 to maintain their standard of living for their average life expectancy. If they wait till age 66, their full retirement age, they need a portfolio of $550,000. And if they wait until age 70, they need a portfolio of $260,000. Now, those are just illustrative numbers, but what it really says is it changes how we think about how much we need to be saving. And it changes our whole perspective on the economics of old age. Because a lot of it, I can't, it, this is more of an impression, but a lot of it, I just get the sense of everyone's assuming you stop working at 60 and then you live the next 30 years off your savings. There are very, and of course you're going to have a gloomy perspective because there are so few people that can do that. Who knows somebody that can do that? And we probably maybe even know one person in our life who could possibly do that. Most people can't, of course. But if you're continuing to work part-time and what that allows you to do is delay taking Social Security. And for the typical worker, the Social Security benefit, taking it at age 70 versus age 62, the benefit's more than 75% larger. Mm-hmm. 
You can, if you continue to work, you can add to your retirement savings. The kids are out of the house. They're not living in the basement any longer. You can add to your retirement savings or at least not tap into your retirement savings. Or if you have to tap into your retirement savings, you're tapping into it less. It just means that your money's going to last longer. And the other thing is, and this is often underestimated, if you're continuing to work, it's good for your health. Now, that may not be true in all jobs and not true for all people, but most of the time when you're at work, it's a community and you have to use your mind. You have to get up in the morning. You have to get to work. You have to lead, get back home. And there's all these, you've probably seen all these mind games uh, for older people, how they can keep their mind young, right? Go to work. They change the computer program. They update it like every three months and you got to learn something new. I'm just doing this right now with Microsoft. And so, but if you think about it. When you go to work, you talk to people. You have people you like. You have people you dislike. You have new things you have to learn. You have all kinds of things that engage you. And so the fact that you're getting up and you're moving about and you're involved in the community, whether even if you don't like a lot of those people, which is that's the nature of community, these things are good for your health. What is really bad for your health and what is really clear is bad for your health is isolation. And isolation is bad for your mental health. It is bad for your physical health. And for many people, work is one way of staying engaged in a community. Oh, I, you are so right on that. And it's one of the areas that I'm so influenced by, which is positive psychology, it says well-being is connection, engagement, and purpose and meaning. And just as you've said, that work provides that. And if people aren't going to work, you need to figure out what's going to, how you're going to build that into your life so you have that connection, engagement, and purpose and meaning. But work is a key part, and I find this so much in my clients. If people are thinking about leaving work and haven't thought about what work has provided in those ways, separate from the money, yeah. then they're digging a grave for themselves. Not literally, but I mean, for some people it is literally. But you can just spiral down if you don't build that into your life, which ties right into a comment by Linda, who's calling in from Milan. And she starts out with a salute to Milan, and she says, no question, just to n a note to say how much I've learned from Chris since his NPR Sound Money days with Bob oh. Potter. He says, I'm enjoying an extended stay in Europe, part teachings about retiring financially independent. So here's to you, Chris. Wow, that's wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> so I wanted to share that part with oh, you. That's great. <laughs> so one of the other things I wanted to what about people, two things. One, I think you're so right. And if people begin to think about what it really means to work a year or two or five or ten, I don't know if ever the retirement age will change. Maybe that's something that needs to happen. But I know from my personal situation, I, as I said before, I'm in my late 60s. My husband's his early 80s. He still works part-time. And it really, we're able to do a lot of the things we want to do because yeah. of still working yeah. and it makes a difference yeah it does make a difference and so this is one of the things where i do i think one of the more interesting questions and it is not an easy question to to necessarily answer is what do i want to do next and one of the things that i don't know if you've had this experience but in reporting out the book one of the things that really struck me i'm at an age where including my son, my youngest son. A, lot of, a number of young college graduates will come to me and they'll ask for career advice, job advice, not so much asking for a job. How do you think about it? And 
how do I go about doing it? And what are my prospects? And someone I can talk to because I'm interested in this. And these are wonderful conversations. These are important conversations. And I think like most people, they, there's an idealism there and we applaud that idealism. They wanted to be doing something that they're proud about. They want to be earning an income. They want to be independent. And this is great. When you talk to someone 60 something, it's in the same position because they want to, they want to earn an income, remain independent, but they also want to do something that they feel proud about, that they feel like they're giving back, that they're making a difference. And the only real difference between that 60-something person and the 20-something person is that the 60-something person knows time short and to the 20-something time is infinity. And so what I what has struck me is, though, is that a lot of people aren't quite sure what is it that I want to do next? What is it that will give me an income but also give me meaning and give me where a sense that I'm making a difference and I'm giving back to my community? And so this is why I really think in those years leading up to retirement, and as I, said, I mentioned earlier, there, we, there there is an important conversation about running the numbers and how much will you have and what's going to be your income when you do say retirement. Let's start talking about what do you want to do next. And there's a wonderful man, Jake Warner. He founded a company called Nolo.com, which is a self-help legal organization. It's national, but it's out, started out in the Bay Area. And I was interviewing him, and something he said always stuck with me. He said, in the Bay Area, environmental organizations are really strong. You could use any other type of organization, but that's part of the story. And he said, here's the thing. You'll have someone show up 68 years old. And they've had good careers and they're good people. And they show up and they say, look, I just retired and I really care about the environment. What can I do? And he says, we'll put them to work and it's good. These are good people. He said, but we have other people. They start showing up, volunteering, do all kinds of activities at age 60. By the time they're 65, we are begging them to retire because we have this job over here that we know they can do. This is the person we want to be doing this job. And that has always struck with me is in the years leading up to retirement, if you're curious about something, take people out who are doing what you're curious about on an informational coffee. If it's a nonprofit, Volunteer at that nonprofit. Find out if you like, do you really like this activity? Do you really like these people? Do you want to be working with these people? Or maybe it's something else. But it's using those years leading up toward what we call quote unquote retirement or the unretirement years. Use that period of time to really explore, okay, what is it that I could do next that could provide me an income, a little more flexibility on my time, but that I really feel good about that provide, as you were saying, meaning and purpose. And that usually takes time. Right. No, you're absolutely right. And I think starting ahead and your suggestions are so well taken. Don't wait until, you know, you're ready to say it's time to retire. The earlier you can start building some of these things in and developing perhaps even hobbies that can turn into businesses right. or the volunteering or whatever. That ties into maybe you could speak a little, and then I have a couple of other questions for people. But what's been your experience of how practical it is for aging boomers to start their own businesses, to become senior entrepreneurs? I think that actually is quite practical. Now, there, there are two kinds of entrepreneurs. And one kind is you lost your job at age 55, 56, 57, and it's just really hard to get another job. But you have a network, you have skills, you have knowledge, and you become a Schedule C business. 
and a consultant, say, consultant would be a classic example. And then you have people who they've had a, an entrepreneurial dream and they're getting older. Hey, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it now. Or they just, I want to work for myself and I want to have some informal partnerships with people I know. I just don't want to be living in an environment anymore where I'm being asked over and over again to do more with less. And I can go out and make a decent living, not a great living, but a decent living, and I'm going to be my own boss. And overall, in 2013, 23% of all new businesses were created by the 55 to 64-year-old age group. And so I think it's actually quite practical. And when people dismiss it, they have this idea, you're not going to, yeah, you're 67 years old and you're going to create Facebook. First of all, it could happen. But secondly, that's not what most people are doing. They're not out to create a multi-billion dollar enterprise that they have 4,000 employees. What they're out to do is create a viable business that they enjoy, that taps into their knowledge, taps into their skill, provides an income, and people who are self-employed can work a lot longer. And the evidence is they do work a lot longer. So I think this is actually a very exciting aspect of it. And there's all kinds of ways to, the one thing, of course, warning bell going off is you don't want to drain your 401k or your 403b or your IRA in order to fund this business. That's No, you don't want to do that. In today's world, you work out of your apartment or your home. You Technology has lowered the cost of doing many things. Maybe you go to a co-sharing workspace where there's lots of other people like you are renting a table and has good Wi-Fi and coffee and some networking opportunities. And So there's all kinds of ways that you can start your own business, a Kickstarter campaign. That doesn't mean that you're draining your retirement savings, and that if it goes bust, you're all of a sudden facing a financial Armageddon. So yes, what I would say is you want to be smart with your money when you're doing this, but I think there is a lot of opportunity here because the most valuable asset the older worker has are their skills, their knowledge, experience, their network. And you know what? If you can solve a problem for someone, you can make some money off of that. Mm-hmm. It's and your creative ideas are really helpful. I'm amazed when I see what people do. When we have so much snow here in Boston, I know you get a lot in Minnesota, but we oh, we're, no, you got it this year. We were last we got it year. This year. But somebody, I couldn't believe this. Just an example of how, if you think you can do something that's going to meet a need of somebody, think about it. Like somebody was boxing up snow and mailing it off to people who wanted snow. Now. Tell me. I don't know how bio that would last. I was talking to an unretired person, and I was doing a call-in show here at Minnesota Public Radio, and this person called in and very happy, really happy. He was in his own retirement, and I'd been a – I'm trying to remember. I think he'd been a school teacher or something. He'd been in administration, K-12 administration, and he retired, but he failed at retirement and kind of bored, and what he ended up being is a driver, so he drives people to the airport and that kind of thing for a limousine taxi company. And he was having a great time because he said, here's the thing. You want to go off for a three-week vacation or you want to go visit the grandkids? You just call up, say, I'm gone for three weeks. And then when you come back, you just call up and say, I'm back. And then stuff comes. And now to me, this is this, this would be the most horrendous, miserable <laughs> period of time because I don't like driving. But he liked driving. He liked yeah. his customers. He liked yeah. the flexibility. And so people are incredibly creative. But what I would – and maybe you're like someone listening to this is like me. Oh, driving. I would never want to do that. <laughs> 
But the thing is, most of us, when we think about what is our, what's next or what possibilities are out yeah. there, a lot of us think about doing the exact same thing that we're doing at the similar kind of organization that we're doing it. And just as you can be creative with artwork and with your photography and what you do on the computer or singing in a cappella group or all these, all the things that people are creative, you can also be creative about what kind of work can I be doing? And here was a guy who realized he liked driving, he liked people, and he liked the flexibility. And boy, this was really working for him. Yep. And it's such a great example that it's just what might work for one person isn't going to work for another. But be creative and open to to think outside the box is really what yeah. it comes down to, to recognize there are different ways of earning money and what you can give might be what somebody needs. <laughs> and there you are. Two Two other questions. I know we're, but thank goodness you had said you could stay a little longer. Two questions really asking for sort of advice and resources. One is from Michelle in Boston, who wondered if you know what would be a good resource for single women, no children, to plan for the future financially and live an active lifestyle. She says she's worked in social services, and so her income has not been that substantial. She's 60, so catching up is limited, and she has to figure out what she can do in the next decade. She said she searched many sites, and most information seems to be geared toward couples. And she wonders if you have any thoughts or advice for single women with or without children, I guess, would be helpful, although in her situation, it's without children. There is a national organization, and it has a very strong chapter in Boston, Women in Transition Network. Oh, uh, the Transition Network. T- yeah. Yes. And, Transition uh, Network. Yep. Yep. Transition Network. And as I say, they have a very active chapter in, in mm-hmm. Boston. I know they yep. have an active chapter in San Francisco. Yep. And that would be one resource that I would tap into. All these resources, what it is, if you go to some chapter meetings and you talk mm-hmm. to people and then you find out how, where else to go, where else to explore. But that's... That would be, if I were in the Boston area, That's that yeah. would be one of the groups that I would reach out to right away and then treat it as almost like a portal. You know, I'm going to go, I'm going to gather information, and I'm going to find a like-minded person. I'm going to find some people who are in similar circumstances to me, and it might be the Transition Network. I don't know. It might be some other organization, but I think that's the kind of way that you can begin to realize what's out there. But I would actually do it in person, go online and find out when their next chapter meeting is or next speaking engagement, but actually go there in person, sign up, talk to people, the people who are there to be helpful, the people who are there want to share their stories. They want everyone's kind of the boomer generation may be be called the me generation, but we're really turning into the us generation and we Mm -hmm. want to help each other out. So that's that's at least one way to, to approach it. Yep. No, I think that's a great idea. And I'll just to know that if you go to transitionnetwork.org, and there is a Boston chapter that's just developed this last year, and they're in-person meetings and stuff and get-togethers, and so it's an opportunity to resource with other people. It's a great idea. And Marilyn, who's in San Francisco, says, I'm 64 and want to get back to work. So this ties into the bit of the age discrimination. I'm finding due to the big gap and possible age discrimination that I'm not given a chance. I'm in social service and there's a lot of competition. I'm strong and in good health, but don't feel I'm getting a chance. So she wondered if you had any kind of advice on I know you spoke a little bit before about the trying to get back to work, but maybe advice for people in social service? Yeah, and the age discrimination, as I said, is real and cannot and don't want to minimize that at all. So there's a couple things to be thinking about. One is 
to really think about your network of people. This might be former colleagues from 10 years ago. It might be some neighbors. It might be some people at an organization maybe you volunteer at. And they might not be in the people that you necessarily know in the social service community, but in other communities that you interact with. And reach out with your network because the thing about your network are the people you know. And more than 50% of all jobs, there's a whole cottage industry approved, comes from your network, colleagues and friends. And I believe actually the most powerful segment is the third degree of separation. So it's not necessarily a family member or a cousin, but it's like someone the cousin knows, that kind of a thing. But anyway, it's because age discrimination doesn't matter to those people. It just, they know you. They know who you are. They know what you're capable of doing. And so that is, that I would really cultivate, really reach out. And there's a great journalist, David Halberstrom. And he said something that has always struck with me. He wrote the book, The Best and the Brightest, for example, which was one of his books. But he was asked one time, what, as a journalist, what is your most important question? And he said, look, at the end of every interview, I always ask, who else should I talk to? And he says, I always get one name. And then I go talk to that person. And then when I end that interview, I say, who else should I talk to? And I think the same thing comes true when you're doing this job search, trying to get back into the market. Talk to people. Maybe you start out at first with the people you're most comfortable with because it can be an awkward conversation. You can test out different ways of having the conversation, but always end that conversation with who else should I talk to? There's also, there's the Transition Network is in San Francisco. There's a number of organizations in the Bay Area. And if you go to Encore.org, and they have a list of Encore-related organizations in a lot of parts of the country. And I know there are a couple in the Bay Area. And so I would go to Encore.org and then just do a little bit of clicking around. I'm not looking at the computer screen right now, but you will you can find out what is of it, what's around in the Bay Area. And then again, start going to some of these chapter meetings and talking to people and see if that can help out. Great advice. And I think you're right. For women, the Transition Network, Encore.org, RP has this Life Reimagine. Life Reimagine, which is a very good program, right. yes. Yep. So there, there are ways, and I think your advice, Chris, is so important and well taken, which is talk to people who know you. They're not going to view you with the age discrimination, and it just may help you think outside the box again. Yeah. And, and I like that. Always ask, who else should I talk to? That's great. And by the way, always also ask them, what do you think I would be good at doing? You might not like the mm. answer, by the way, right? But you're seeking information. You're not, you yeah. are out for information. So they might say something startling or surprising mm. or, and anyway, that I do think those conversations really will pay off over time. Wonderful. And I have a little thank you from somebody who said thank you for mentioning the Transition Network. Let me just see what she says here. She says, thank you for mentioning the Transition Network. This is Linda from New York. She's in the New York chapter, and they have groups of women who are exploring the financial situations your caller mentioned, and they're have occasional presentations by experts focusing on how to manage your finances to build your life options. Also, by extending your network through TTN, which is the Transition Network, you'll meet like-minded people who are pursuing similar interests. There are 12 chapters around the country, and she's on the TTN board. So by all means, I think it's a terrific organization for you to check out. Chris, this has been fabulous. I just can't thank you enough. I do want to say, oh, wait, there's one more 
person here. Oh, Renee from New York says she acknowledges that age discrimination does exist as many other discriminations. Know that what you have to offer, know what you have to offer and stay away from places that the RP listings say are not good and go to the ones that RP says are the best places to work if you're over 50. And Renee has a book she just reminded me. I'm glad you're on the call, Renee. Achieving the Good Life After 50. And she has a lot of suggestions for being able to look and go through some exercises and all to think about finding work when you're over 50. So I recommend her book. And also Carrie Hannon's books are, yeah, are often yep. really helpful. Yeah, I heard, and, Love Your Job is yeah. a very good book that just came out. Yep, love, yeah, that just came out. And Marcy Albahor, the Encore Career Handbook, which is tied into Encore.org that Chris has mentioned, and it's got some terrific suggestions of just helping you think about what's next. So I recommend all of those. I could go on for, for hours, but I know we've already gone much over. So <laughs> any last – you may want to share your website with people. And any last takeaway, Chris, that – you'd like or last kind of comment that you'd like people to take away? Yeah, so the takeaway is, and I think it's been underlying all these questions in our conversation, this is an enormous experiment that's going on. And this is a rethinking, it's a reimagining of the last third of life or the last half of life. And the real beneficiary, and the thing about experimentation is that it's not going to work out for everyone. And that's just a harsh fact of life. Because the real beneficiary, though, of all this experimentation is the younger generation. So when my 22-year-old is in his 50s, he's a very different view of what the last third of life is like than the current 50-year-old and the current 60-year-old. And I think that's one of the most exciting aspects mm -hmm. of this whole conversation that we're having. Yes, it's involving the boomers and the changes that they're facing and the redefining and the reimagining. But in doing this experimentation, the younger generation is going to learn a lot. And by the time they're in their 50s and 60s, it's going to be a very different experience. And I think that's exciting, and I think it's wonderful, and it should put the rest to any of this conversation about intergenerational conflict. We're in this together. How wonderful to hear you say that, and that's very exciting. It's part of that giving back. That's so much part of the 60s generation that I'm part of, but this idea that what we're doing is really changing the paradigm for our kids or yeah. that generation and the whole retirement notion, getting older notion, it's going to be different than it is for now. That's terrific takeaway. Thank you. Thank, this was just wonderful. Thank you so much for being with us. And Chris, thank you. And everybody, I really do encourage you to buy the book. Take care, everybody. Thanks again, Chris. This was great. You've been listening to Revolutionize Your Retirement Radio with Dr. Dorian Mincer. To learn more about the resources mentioned on today's show, listen to past episodes, or download our free retirement transition guide, visit revolutionizeyourretirementradio.com. 